2 Timothy chapter 3 this evening. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's last letter to his son Timothy. He knows his end is not far off. He says in chapter 4, I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. So these are words of his spiritual father. The last words are given to his son in the faith before he leaves this scene of time. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll commence reading in verse 1. Let's all hear the Lord's holy word. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep in the houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Let's bow for a moment in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, I realize it's a sacred thing to handle the word of God. 
the last thing I want to do is to put my own stamp upon it, my own mark. I don't want to add to it, and I don't want to take away. I pray, therefore, that Thou wilt enable me to be true to the Word, that my exposition of this passage will not only be accurate and faithful to what is written in the entire body of Scripture, but Thou wilt send this Word throughout our hearts. Crown it with success, we pray. Defeat the devil's attempts to always snatch away the seed of thy word so there's no fruit borne by it. And give me help, I pray. And give thy people help tonight. Thou who art the great helper of the helpless. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As you read the epistles of Paul in the New Testament, you begin to realize that there was perhaps no one closer to his heart than his beloved son, Timothy. His Greek name, Timotheus, means honoring or worshiping God. Theos, theology, you can see that. Timae is the word for honor, honoring God. The reference to God However, in that day, time was with paganism. It was a very common heathen name in his day, but believing Jews began to use it in naming their children with a change in the reference to God. In their minds, it was a reference to the true God. It must have been this very thing that was in the heart of his mother Eunice, when she named him Timothy. She was a devout Jew, but she was married to a Greek pagan. A Greek name she would give him, but it was with the full purpose that this young child would one day worship her God, and not the gods of her father, the true and living God. As we read this evening, she diligently taught her son the sacred scriptures. His father wasn't going to do that. She knew that. And she took it upon herself. I must, I will teach him the scriptures of truth. From several comments made by Paul in 1 Corinthians and in 1 and 2 Timothy, we find that the apostle had been the means of Timothy's conversion during his first missionary journey, which was around 47 AD, and that Timothy had even then become acquainted with the persecutions and the sufferings of these missionaries of Christ. But it was at the start of Paul's second missionary journey around 51 AD that he asked Timothy to join him in his labors on the mission field. He was, Timothy was, with Paul and Silas when they came to the city of Thessalonica and then to the city of Berea. He stays behind there and helps Silas to strengthen and to encourage this infant church while Paul moves on to the city of Athens. 
After the season, Timothy himself goes to meet up with Paul in Athens. But Paul has heard about the awful persecutions that the Christians were now facing in Thessalonia. And so, deeply anxious to find out how they were holding up under the persecution, he sends his trusted son in the faith, Timothy, back to that city to see how things were going and to give them any help, support, encouragement that they would need to continue on in the faith. Paul, while Timothy's back with Thessalonica, Paul has very little success in Athens as far as the gospel is concerned. And he goes on to the city of Corinth. While he is there, Timothy and Silas rejoin the apostle and carry on the task of evangelizing the lost in that city and in edifying the saints. It's during Paul's third missionary journey that he goes to Ephesus where Timothy labors with him for three years and where they saw a tremendous work of God raised up in that place. From Ephesus, Timothy is sent to the churches in Macedonia and in Corinth regrouping with Paul at different times and spots in his missionary efforts. For a little while, we lose sight of Timothy. The next time we hear of him, he is again at Ephesus, where Paul joins him and, and asks him to stay there and to minister to those people, to pastor them. While Timothy is ministering in Ephesus, he receives a letter from Paul, which we know as 1 Timothy. All of that's transpired before this first letter comes. Many months pass, during which time nothing is heard regarding Timothy. Then another letter arrives in which Paul, writing from a Roman prison, urges Timothy to come to him before winter. He knows that his own death is near at hand, the hands of the Roman government, and he wants to speak to his beloved son one last time. Whether he made it or not, we don't know. But what takes our attention this evening is the cause of this second letter to Timothy. There has been an entire change in the situation of the church at Ephesus. It wasn't like it when he had left Timothy there initially. We find that doctrinal error and persecution of believers was raging on every hand. And Paul, writing from his, his cell, being in doubt whether Timothy, knowing Timothy's personality, knowing Timothy's natural proclivity to be afraid, in doubt whether Timothy will be able to reach Rome before his death, admonishes him that whatever happens, he must keep clinging to and preaching and defending sound doctrine against every enemy. That's really what Second Timothy is all about. 
2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. And chapter 4 verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And so it's that subject that I want to speak to you upon this evening. I, my departure is at hand, not the kind that I trust that Paul was about to face, but my departure is at hand. And if there was a, a word that I would want to leave with you, it would be this word. Verse 14, he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Continue in the things you've learned and have been assured of. This is the Lord's command to hold on to His Word. First thing I want you to see from this text is the import of the command, the import of it. He's told him very plainly, Timothy, hold fast. Hold fast the form of sound words. He has instructed him to continue in the truths, the doctrines of God's Word that he's been taught. What's he actually asking Timothy to do? And what am I asking you to do? Even before answering those questions, we need to see what Paul is actually directing Timothy to hold on to and to continue in. First, this command centers on the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very true it covers every, all doctrine that Paul had ever taught Timothy and that Timothy had ever learned from his mother and his grandmother. But don't ever forget that the central theme of the Scriptures is the doctrine, the truth of the glorious person and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Every doctrine of the Bible revolves around the cross. The doctrine of the Lamb of God is the chief doctrine of this book. It is redemptive, redemptive at its very heart. Always look for the theme of redemption, whether you're in Genesis or Revelation. For every book, look for that theme of redemption to be found, because that's the chief purpose. It's redemptive revelation. And so we are led, in light of His cross and of Christ, to know the doctrine. If that is done, we are led to know the doctrine of sin... We are also taught the doctrine of God's love for sinners. We are led to the doctrine of election. We're brought to that truth of justification by faith. We're led to the doctrine with the gospel of Jesus Christ... The doctrine of sanctification, separated, holy, living. And we're led to the doctrine of glorification. All of that is wrapped up in the gospel. So when you're asked the question, what's the gospel? 
know, Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Yes, I, I get that. That is the great good news, but brothers and sisters, we need to understand what that means. Amen. We need to understand the tie there is, the, the connection there is between Jesus dying on the cross and our being righteous in the eyes of God. How'd that take place? It's not just focusing on our sins being forgiven. That's not enough. It is not enough just to have our sins forgiven. We are not going to be accepted by God unless we have a perfect righteousness. And that's nothing that we can ever earn. You work all your life and you'll never get it. You'll never set foot in heaven if you have not a perfect righteousness. That's part of the good news. I'm not ashamed at all. I'm not afraid at all in any place or time to call myself a Calvinist. I am a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. An Arminian has a different view of the gospel than I have. I'm not saying they're lost, but I am telling you, they have a different view of the gospel than I have. Because the gospel is more than Jesus died for sinners. I do not hesitate to take the name of Presbyterian. I was raised in a Baptist home. Went to a Baptist church all my younger years. I'm a Presbyterian, however, by conviction. I've come to that from studying the Scriptures. How the Lord governs His church. But if you ask me what my creed is, I will answer with old C.H. Spurgeon. It is Jesus Christ. Let me quote him. He is the sum and substance of the gospel. He is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious doctrine, the divine embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. So when he tells Timothy to continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, he's referring to that gospel and the doctrines that are all intricately tied up with the gospel. There's something else in this command. This command tells the church and this church that she must dwell on those doctrines. That word in verse 14, continue, it's that common word. Well, the verb form is minnow. In case you're interested, you're probably not, but that's the Greek term. It means to dwell, to abide, to remain as in a home. It's not where you visit once in a while. You think about it once in a while. You continue on. You dwell in. This, this is where you live. 
in this doctrine of the gospel. In other words, the thing Paul is telling Timothy, and what I am setting before you before I leave. We are never, ever to depart from these doctrines. And if you're living there, you don't leave them. You don't leave them. You don't turn your back on them. You don't forsake them. And you certainly don't exchange them for some other doctrine. Amen. Therefore, we are never to add anything to them. And we are never to take anything from them. They don't need any kind of emendation. God's Word is pure. It's, it's, it's flawless. Christ and His doctrines are well able to deal with any and every situation that you will ever face. It's well able to satisfy any and every spiritual need you will ever find in your life. Scripture is all-sufficient. Let's not simply talk about the all-sufficiency of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and yet act as if it is not all-sufficient for any situation. As if we need the scriptures as if we need the truth of God's word plus something else to get us through and to satisfy us and to content us because we don't. That's not the mindset that's popular today. That's not the mindset. Study Paul's letters carefully and you'll find that he dealt with every problem that arose in the churches with the doctrine of Christ and his cross work. Every time. And that is why Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The know-it-alls in the church of Corinth thought that he needed to amend his message, to uh, change his, to tweak his doctrine a bit because it was just so rough and rugged. The cross and crucifixion and blood and sacrifice, you need to have a little more uh, refinement to your message, Paul, and that will appeal to the masses. Hey, this is a city that's uh, smart. The philosophers are here. The, the, the people are so wise and they're just going to blow you off with your simple-minded message. The, the hint was, you should be embarrassed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He refused to mix the wisdom of men with his doctrine in order to make it appealing. He had a very firm grip upon the gospel. And the gospel had a very firm grip on him. And he would not let it go. He wouldn't budge. He never allowed himself to be dragged down into petty views or concepts or principles as the chief matter of his ministry. It was always, always the person and work of Christ. It was always the gospel and all those truths I mentioned in the first point. And why, and, and why not? 
There is enough material and in a thousand lifetimes preaching Christ when he is your theme. So what, what, what do preachers preach if they don't preach him? I very recently heard a preacher. I, I didn't listen to a whole lot, but this is on a Lord's Day morning, and he's talking about some college football team and the players and whatever else was going on with them. And who, who, who's the greatest running back of all? This is what's going on. What else is there to preach if it's not the doctrine of the gospel of Christ crucified? Amen. Here's what Paul is telling Timothy and what I am telling you that you must hold on to at any price. This is the case where you buy the truth and you sell it not. You don't let this go for anybody, anything. This is what, he tells Timothy, you must dwell upon in all of your preaching, in all of your pastoring, dwell upon this doctrine. And you see, the day that the church departs from sound doctrine, the day it ceases to center on Christ and the doctrine of the cross is the day when you can write Ichabod over the doors of the church. Amen. The glory's departed. Stay on. I can live with people departing, but not the glory of the Lord departing. And this is all the glory. This is all the glory. It's worth it all. I'll preach to a few if it will let me preach the glorious doctrines of Jesus Christ. Far rather have that than have thousands where Christ is not preached. Where there is no glory of the Lord. There's no sense of His presence. There's no reality of the Lord standing right beside you and bearing you up. You can have that. This command of Paul to continue in the things that he had learned, it's a command to the church that she must defend these doctrines. Not just dwell, stay in them, hold fast to them, but she also must defend the doctrines. If you are to continue in those things, and as Paul said, hold fast to the form of sound words, then it will require that you and I, with all of God's grace to help us to guard and to defend these doctrines when someone tries to change them or to take them away from you. There's an assumption being made that you know what you're defending. 
you know, the doctrines that have to be held on to. He, he told Timothy in his first letter to fight the good fight of faith. And that word means contend for, struggle with. It was a word used in the, in the Greek athletic games. It wasn't child's play. When you're in that kind of a contention and that kind of fight, it's serious business. These are life and death matters. And I mean life and death for a church. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, keep guard that which is committed to thy trust. You see the implication? You have to guard it because it will be attacked. Back in chapter 1 of this same book, verse 14, the good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by guard by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Jump to chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. It was Paul who wrote to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, verse 17. I am set for the defense of the gospel. I'm fixed. I'm going to defend it because it will be attacked. Do you realize how much we are living at a time when the gospel has come under attack like never before in the most subtle ways? All of these verses show us that part and parcel to continuing in the sound doctrines demands that we defend these doctrines when they are attacked, whether by is the attack is coming from open, inveterate enemies of the gospel or insidiously from false teachers of the gospel or even by well-meaning Christians. Who for all of their good intentions are espousing error. I know that to do that is never politically correct. And I know that if you are going to defend the doctrines, guard them, then it's going to bring on the wrath of many people both in and outside of the church. But how in the world can you say or that you, that you love something or that you love someone and not stand up for them and vocalize and show your love when that very person or that thing is being attacked. How, how, do you, how can you say you love them? You attack my wife and I'll show you how much I love her. You attack my children and I will show you how much I love them. I will defend them. 
the most loving person that ever graced this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not spare the Pharisees or the Sadducees one bit. He spoke openly, continually against them and against their religion. He let everybody know crowds that gathered around them. He let everybody know, and he did it in their presence, that they were hypocrites, that they were liars, they were deceivers, they were false teachers, they were apostates. So I guess the question is, do you want to be like Jesus in that regard? Oh, you might not be given those opportunities to speak to large crowds where there's a bunch of false teachers and liberals and apostates and you can just make the truth be known, but you can in your way and I can in mine, you in your corner and I can and I in mine can do that very same work of defending the gospel because it's always under attack. Let the chips fall where they may. There's something far more important than people's feelings. And that's the truth of the gospel. If we don't defend the gospel doctrines, if we don't try or judge the spirits as, as John said and expose the teachers and their, and their errors who will do it if the church doesn't do it and what will happen if we don't you see it's this matter of being Silent that sends the message of consent. It's a part of the ministry of this church in this day is to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. It means there's a place for us to expose the liars, the twisters. It means you have to take open stands against men and movements and churches and teachings which attack and undermine the doctrines of Jesus Christ. You have to do that. You can't be silent. There's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it, but still it must be done. One of the things that Martin Luther said that's been often quoted is germane to what I'm saying now. He wrote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. Now some will say, Listen, the way to defend the truth is through a positive presentation of the truth. You will only hurt your own cause if you are critical and negative. 
Now, I don't have any argument that a positive presentation of Christ and the gospel is the most powerful way, the way that must be used most by the church in her battle for the truth. If the bulk of any church's ministry is taken up with fighting apostates and false teachers and their teachings all the time, then that church has failed in its main task, which is to evangelize the lost and to build up the saints. That must never be the prime emphasis of the church. But it is just as wrong to try to cover up, to tone down, to water down what the Bible says about these things and what we are to do as God's people. That's just as wrong. Listen, folks, there is a place for strong negativity when it comes to defending the faith. There's a place for it. You might not like controversy. Who, who in their right mind really does like controversy? Who likes conflict? But I say this as gently as I can say it. You must get over that. You must. Let me just read just a few verses from Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, 23, sorry. Matthew chapter 23, just a, just a handful of verses. Christ says in verse 14, Woe unto you, whole crowds around them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Whew. You're a bunch of liars and you're thieves. You're robbing poor widows. And you're pretending that you're religious by your long public prayers. You're hypocrites. He didn't tell them that in a private conversation. Verse 24, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And when Paul needed to, he would name names. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. He names two men who were teaching false doctrine, Hymenaeus and Philetus. He didn't hesitate. Rather, I should say, the Holy Ghost did not hesitate. Did not hesitate to name them. Stay 
if I'm going and you're going to fight and to contend, it's just going to take some negative action on our part. Whether I like it or not, it's my obligation as a Christian to defend the doctrine of the one I call my Lord and Savior. This command also tells the church that she must diffuse these doctrines. The point of continuing on, uh, dwelling in them and defending them, is not simply to expose the liars, the deceivers, and the apostates and get blessings for your own soul. It is actually to diffuse the doctrines. They were never given to us to be concealed. Indeed, the very word gospel is about making a public proclamation. And one of the sure ways that the people of God will continue in the things that they have learned and to defend that things they have learned is by continuing to preach these doctrines, to diffuse these doctrines, to display them before all. So right after telling Timothy to continue in these doctrines, Paul gives him a solid charge. Preach the word, Timothy. Whether men want to hear it or not, you just keep preaching the word. Because there will come times in the church when men will not want to hear sound doctrine, and that is exactly where we are right now. But you keep diffusing them. You just keep at it. For the time will come when they will not endure. Sound words, sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That word endure means to bear up with, to, to suffer it, to allow it. Modern day vernacular, they will not put up with. They have no time for sound doctrine. They will not tolerate that which would actually promote spiritual health in their lives. What they will embrace is doctrine, is teaching that will let them have their carnal lust scratched. Those itches. You preach doctrine? That tells them that this life is not all about you. It's all about Christ. You teach doctrine that's going to tell them you can't have the world and Jesus too. You teach doctrine that tells them you've got to turn your back on the world you, as best you can. By the grace of God, you seek to live a clean life, a separate life from sin and from the world and from compromise. And you'll find out very quickly they're not interested. They think they can halt between two opinions. One foot in the church and one foot in the world. We're living in that time when Christians Christian doctrine is 
boring. Just boring. Justification by faith. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to us and the imputation of our sin to him. Oh, preacher, those things are just so boring. I want to know why in the world is the word of God boring? Because that's the very things that the gospel teaches. How, how is that that it's boring? Oh, it's because doctrines, doctrines, you know, doctrines aren't exciting. They don't give you the warm and fuzzy feeling that you look for when you go to church. So the thinking is, <laughs> doctrines don't move you to tears. Let me tell you folks something. There's nothing that's ever moved me to tear like some of the deepest doctrines of Scripture. Nothing has ever moved me to weeping before God as some of the deepest doctrines of the gospel. That He chose me and did not pass me by. That from eternity He made me a vile, wretched sinner, a rebel against God, one of His people, put me in Christ. You tell me that's not exciting? That that's boring? To say that I have not just the privilege, but I have the right to come right into the presence of the Almighty and to call upon Him with complete confidence and boldness because I have Christ's righteousness imputed to me by God Himself. I find that very thrilling. Amen. I want to hear more of it. And I want to believe it more strongly than I do. I don't want to run away from it. I don't want a preacher to keep quiet about it. Tell me who I am and tell me what I am. And tell me how to live this life. Tell me how I could overcome sin. And I'll tell you, it's by the doctrine of the cross. But there is so much confusion. And so many Christians are absolutely have gone haywire. And they are confused. Because the message that's been coming out for decades now has been confusing. There has been a de-emphasis upon the doctrines. What do you expect? When the very fundamental building blocks of everything have been knocked out from under you, what would you expect to happen? You see, doctrines... The doctrine of God's Word requires serious thinking. It requires some real effort and, and study. And it requires prayer. To have prayed well is to have studied well. 
was what Martin Luther said. But that's not popular. I believe we're going to look back when all this is over and look at all the modern conveniences that have been given to us and find at the end of the day they were a big curse. Amen. You think for all the conveniences we'd have all kinds of time on our hands to do the serious study. I had a, there was an old washboard when I was a kid growing up in my home and a big old basin, metal basin. I might have been around six or seven before they got a real washer that had one of those ringers, you know, you'd wash it and it'd open and it'd come through. My mom didn't have a dryer. She went out and in the snow. I remember it, hanging the clothes on the line. And they were as stiff as anything when the temperatures dropped. No microwave. Now there's a sermon topic for you, microwave Christianity. Everything is instant. It just doesn't work like that. Why do you think the likes of Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, Benny Hinn flourish? Why? Do you think they would flourish, really flourish, if God's people knew sound doctrine? you'd recognize right away that's a false teacher completely unbiblical you would need to go to your pastor and say what do you think about so and so you would know immediately because you've been grounded in the truth These people that he's referring to in 2 Timothy 4, they want to listen to preachers who will tell them what they want to hear and not what they need to hear. It's not the sensational stories. It's not the tear-jerking stories. It's not the fascinating stories. It's sober truth that they need to hear. Sober, sober truth. And when the sound doctrine is presented to them... The response is, they turn their ear away, they shut their mind down, because it's not what they wanted to hear. It's for that very reason, especially in the last days, that the great emphasis of the church must be on sound doctrine. Study them, know them, diffuse them by your life. 
by your tongue. It is this that will keep you from going off the rails. It will enable you to continue in the things you've learned. God write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Our God and Father in heaven, thank thee tonight for the opportunity thou hast given to thy servant to proclaim the doctrines of the Word of God. It would, Lord, be a natural desire to want to be able to say these things to thousands who have been deceived, led astray. But that's not part of thy plan for this servant. But thou hast given the people to preach to who want to know sound doctrine. And I pray tonight, Lord, that thou wilt enable this work to carry on, to continue in the things they've learned, to hold fast the truth, and to hold forth the truth. Make us the bright lights and the salty salt, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.